Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Amy Holmes, and joining me for today's episode is Dr. Stephen Eckel, Associate Dean and Professor at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Anne-Marie Walton, Associate Professor at the Duke University School of Nursing, about compliance with USP Chapter 800 and best practices to minimize employee exposure to hazardous drugs. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. So we have some questions from our previous webinar that we're going to discuss, and one of the things that came up that we had not addressed previously was, what about investigational drugs? Do you have any perspectives on whether these should be considered hazardous medications? Thanks for that question, Amy. Investigational agents present a intriguing sort of perspective or debate that goes on in many pharmacy departments. Because they're investigational, sometimes they are uh, active drugs that are already been FDA approved that we know what they are. They're open label studies. And then other times they are new compounds that are uh, early on, haven't been FDA approved. And when you're in the situation that they haven't been FDA approved, many times you do not know the safety profile of those medications. And if you're in a large cancer center that does significant amount of research, you will be doing phase one through phase three trials on these medications that are being investigated for their treatment for different cancers. Because you don't know what those drugs are in the safety profile, I think it's a best practice to recommend using a closed system transfer device and treating all of those drugs like hazardous medications. Because you don't know the safety profile, you don't know what the impact is on on individuals, especially the healthcare professionals. And since USP 800, as well as the intent of this webinar is to focus on the uh, safety of these medications, then I think it's best to take a conservative approach and treat them as such. However, if you begin sort of planning out to handle them in that manner, you've got to ensure that all of the safety profiles from the primary engineering controls, all the way to the secondary engineering controls, your gloving and your gowning, you follow the same principles that you follow in your hazardous drug preparation area if they happen to be separated. One question that does get raised on occasion is, well, that's a new expense. Uh, there's going to be new costs associated with handling these medications this way. Uh, how should we handle that? And and some organizations have been successful at building that into the cost for the sponsor. So if you've had familiarity with investigators or drug services, you recognize that there's a period of going through the budget and the contracting and building that in as a fixed expense that needs to be covered by the sponsor would help minimize and defray the expenses of treating these as hazardous drugs. So that would be my recommendation. That's been my experience in the past is to, to handle it that way. And that's, of course, the way that way we would recommend to approach it in a more conservative approach than not. That's a great perspective. Thank you so much for sharing that. I had never really considered investigational drugs and the fact that you don't really know yet if they're hazardous or not. So we got a lot of comments from our participants about how much they appreciated the collaboration between pharmacy and nursing on this webinar. 
and comments that they'd like to see more collaboration in their own practices. Specifically, one example was in handling non-chemotherapy hazardous medications. So a question came in as an example of having a nurse safely split a spironolactone pill for a half dose, as well as providing general knowledge for nursing staff on safe handling and disposal. Would one of you like to make some comments on that? Sure, Amy, I'm happy to. So first of all, thank you. I think that it it really is important to have pharmacy and nursing together. And I think that's part of why the hazardous drug work groups are intended to be multidisciplinary. And I think there's also a reason why both USP 800 and NIOSH talk about these work groups as hazardous drug work groups and not chemotherapy work groups. The handling, as Stephen just said, is important for all hazardous drugs more broadly than chemotherapy. Many other drugs are hazardous too. And spironolactone, which was asked about, is a good example of a non-chemotherapy drug that's still on that NIOSH list of hazardous drugs and is still subject to USP 800 when it's crushed or compounded. I think it's probably most helpful to hear the direct language that's in USP 800 about this, and I have a copy here, so I'll just read it to you, and that is, healthcare personnel should avoid manipulating hazardous drugs such as crushing tablets or opening capsules if possible. Liquid formulations are preferred if solid oral dosage forms are not appropriate for the patient. And if HD dosage forms do require manipulation, such as crushing or opening capsules for a single dose, personnel must don appropriate PPE and use a plastic pouch to contain any dust or particles generated. So that's the exact guidance that we would suggest a nurse follow in the handling of spironolactone. So Anne-Marie, back when I went to pharmacy school, that was a while ago where we had to carry things like textbooks. When I learned about spironolactone, I think I learned it in the cardiology or the renal module, not the oncology module. And so I don't think I would have ever considered drugs like that to be hazardous. And and I think that's probably still taught on those modules because that's the way the drug works. But what we have learned over time is that many of these drugs are hazardous. And uh, while those principles are not and properties are not being used, we need to make sure that we understand and refer back often to the NIOSH list because there are many medications that are on there that uh, one would not expect. Actually, I remember when the NIOSH list came out for the first time thinking, gosh, never handled that drug in that way. So, So there's probably good things for us to learn through that. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. A lot of surprises on that list when it first came out. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. So there were questions about disposal of expired medications or hazardous medications. So in the spironolactone example, how would you dispose of that drug? Yeah, I think it's important for us to all recognize that, uh, again, traditionally how we used to dispose of medications, throw them into the landfill, flush them down the toilet, is uh, not the appropriate or ideal way to do that. And EPA has some very strong guidelines and each state needs to make sure that they figure out those guidelines. And so on the nursing level, especially in this one, if you have nurses compounding spironolactone on the floor and treating them as such or, or having hazardous drugs, those medications that are not being administered and those properties need to be disposed of in certain ways that are different than other medical waste. 
And so it's important for anybody as well as leaders in both nursing and pharmacy to set up the policies and educate individuals per those policies. Also in the pharmacy, we need to have that same education. So not only is it a regulated medical waste versus a hazardous medical waste, if there's more than a certain portion of the medication left in the vial, there's another way that we have to dispose of it to ensure that everything is done appropriately to minimize the impact of those medications on the environment, number one, but two, ensuring that we are following federal guidelines on how these should be managed and disposed of. And there are some great resources out there. There are some there are some companies that you can work with that can work with you on your medical waste, but it's important to, to really think through that and have a, a good strategy and everyone knows what that strategy is. So let's pivot a little bit. Are there any opportunities to optimize the EHR to communicate hazardous drug precautions? Yes, I really like this question because I think when we think about the EHR, we think about working with what's there, right? And the reality is that EHRs are created by people and they can be modified. And just as we initially had to create contact precautions or neutropenic precautions to come up as flags or labels in a patient's EHR, especially when they you know, came for an inpatient stay, we can do the same thing with hazardous drug precautions. I liken it to the sign on the door, right, for contact precautions or neutropenic precautions or even hazardous drug precautions, that all of that same labeling could be seen by everyone who enters the EHR. If I think about some of my own work that I've done with nursing assistants, one of the things that we hear from them is that they are not sure which patients are receiving hazardous drugs and with whom they have to handle excreta more carefully. And one of the things that they shared with my team and some qualitative interviews was even those who are in nursing school who would recognize some of these hazardous drugs by name can't access the med list in the EHR for the patient. And so simply flagging hazardous drug precautions for that patient for 72 hours after administration would give them access to that information that they need that that they can't otherwise get from the EHR. So I think this is a great example of a way that we as humans need to recreate and redesign the EHR to work for us and to be inclusive and communicative to all types of healthcare workers. So Anne-Marie, what you're suggesting in that example is that not everybody can see the med list? Correct. So I guess I hadn't really thought about that. And, and in that situation, then it doesn't relieve the pharmacy department to have all the stickers or other notifications on the medication thinking, oh, it's noted in the electronic health record. But if not everyone can see the med list or get those messages, then we have to, I guess, on the pharmacy department, continue to flag and label and notify different ways beyond the electronic medical record. Yeah, I think, you know, you make a good point about the labeling and the stickering that occurs on bags, um, and that's visible when you're in the room. But as we know, patients remain on precautions for 48 or 72 hours, depending on the hospital policy, after that drug has been administered. And so we have to think about physical therapists, respiratory therapists, nursing assistants, EVS workers, people who an EVS workers probably won't have access either to the EHR. So that's why the the signage on the door is so important. 
but the team even more broadly than nurses and pharmacists who are coming into contact with this patient and their body fluids for 48 to 72 hours after administration. So the EHR provides an opportunity for that. That's great. Thank you so much for that information, sharing your thoughts on that. So do either of you know of a product that will accomplish all or multiple steps in one to accomplish the deactivate, decontaminate, clean, disinfect approach? I'm not aware of one product that does it all, unfortunately. I'm pretty familiar with the literature in this area, and I'm working with a colleague on an update to the Oncology Nursing Society Safe Handling textbook. So we've been doing a lot of recent reading and digging in this area. And I'll mention this paper by Simon in 2020 that probably did the most recent comprehensive review of cleaning agents, and they found that there was a lot of variation in the types of anti-neoplastic drugs that were used in the studies, but the single agent that had the highest removal efficiency for the largest number of anti-neoplastic drugs that they looked at across studies was bleach. And it's not, they both bleach and brew tabs are highly effective cleaners used individually and are also disinfectants, but they're not without their limitations. They both can be very tough on metal surfaces, particularly bleach. And bleach, as we know, has a very strong smell and can cause irritation for healthcare workers, especially EVS workers who are working with large quantities of it and thus must be flushed with water after they're applied. So adding a detergent can increase the efficiency of these solutions, but then you also have to remove the detergent to remove residue after cleaning. We also have learned that multiple cleanings are helpful to remove things efficiently, and they recommend at least two cleanings with three being preferred. From the literature, it seems like cleaning more than three times isn't worth the effort. The other thing that we've learned just kind of reviewing these studies is that cleaning, especially in the case of a spill, cleaning quickly is important, that the longer something sits on a surface, the harder it is to remove, especially in some of these more porous surfaces. And there's just some natural difference between the porosity of of things like laminate versus linoleum versus plastic versus metal. So lots to consider there, but I think the difficult answer is there's no one product that does it all. Bleach is probably one of the most commonly recommended and still has to be considered. So it sounds like pharmacy managers now need to start reading literature on cleaning agents, not just uh, (laughs) literature on medications. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around the science behind even simple steps of disinfection, decontamination, deactivation. But I guess if we're going to be scientists and we're going to make sure that we have the best products, and again, this is all about safety, then we probably need to follow this literature. I probably thought about these terms deactivate and decontaminate more than many people. But when USP 800 came out, I felt like they were saying deactivation was the ideal setting, that if we can take any hazardous drug and deactivate it into a non-hazardous substance, that's that's ideal. While I agree with that concept in aggregate, the reality is, is that if we're changing sort of the chemical structure through deactivation, some drugs are pro-drugs, which then could we be changing them actually into an active hazardous drug where they weren't before? 
or we don't know a whole lot to what compound it's changed to to deactivate it in nature. And because of that, I've sort of wondered, is decontamination a better step and an ideal step than deactivation just because we're removing the substance from the surface and that why we're doing that is we're trying to minimize the chance of, of exposure. But but all that being said is the more and more literature we have around the different agents that are marketed only makes us better in the selection that we provide. The one other thing that I think Anne-Marie didn't mention as much is you might get into the smell. Some of these are uh, are very caustic in terms of smell and, and some employees have to leave the room when some of these things are happening. So, so it's just another consideration as you begin looking at both their effectiveness, but also some of the characteristics associated with them. Can you explain the difference between quantitative and qualitative testing for hazardous drugs? Yeah, to keep this at a high level, it really, really depends upon a qualitative test will give you a plus or minus, is that drug there? And it can be done in a real-time fashion and the ones they have out there in the market have access to a, a few drugs. And you can just do it in a quick form or fashion to say, yes, it's there or not there. The problem though with the qualitative testing is it doesn't tell you how much drugs there. And is it a lot, is it a little? And so quantitative testing, while that testing takes a little bit longer to get the responses back, you get an accurate representation about how much drug. Um, so you know what's the exposure risk or minimal exposure risk for your employees. And then secondarily, you get access to a lot more drugs that way. I think listeners here probably know that there's no requirement from USP 800 to test. It's a, it's a recommend. But that information for those that have done it before can be very helpful to either reinforce with your staff that you need to do a better job because we're seeing exposure still occurring, or maybe in terms of what Anne-Marie just sort of approached about your, your disinfection or your decontamination agents, maybe not doing it as ideal as possible. Or it can be confirmatory that says things we're following best practices and our employees are at limited risk from exposure on, on um, surfaces. So it, it, the recommendation then is coming up with a good strategy that works best for your organization and then follow that and do that on a routine basis. Well, I think we have time for one more question. Do you recommend a reference or a method to determine if inhalation or aerosolization is a concern with specific drugs or dosage forms? Sure, I'm happy to take that one. Again, in the um, Oncology Nursing Society safe handling text that we're working on updating right now, we have a section on this. I think it's also in the ONS safe handling toolkit and a couple of other resources as well. But we're concerned that aerosolization or vaporization occurs at room temperature with certain drugs, and we list those out. So ones that are on that list that you are probably familiar with and just may not realize that that's of concern are carmustine, cisplatin, cyclophosphamide, etoposide, and fluorouracil. And what is important to understand about these drugs is that when cleaning a spill that contains one of these drugs, beak 
because they are likely to aerosolize or vaporize even, you know, at room temperature, we recommend use of a PAPR, which is a powered air purifying respirator when cleaning a spill. So those are ones to be aware of um, that additional equipment is needed in doing a spill because of that, their ability to vaporize or aerosolize at room temperature. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Stephen Eckel and Dr. Anne-Marie Walton for joining us today to discuss compliance with USP Chapter 800 and best practices to minimize employee exposure to hazardous drugs. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the USP Chapter 800 Assessment of Risk Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.